Hello and welcome to another episode of Cyberspeak with InfoSec, the weekly podcast where industry thought leaders share their knowledge and experience in order to help us all keep one step ahead of the bad guys. As part of InfoSec's effort to close the skills gap and empower people through security education, Cyberspeak will continue to be speaking with diverse and interesting women in the cybersecurity industry and hearing their stories, including today's guest. An experienced technology executive, Elizabeth Mann leads the life sciences and health sectors in America's cybersecurity at EY Advisory. She helps executives and boards seek balance in an increasingly disruptive digital economy. Having worked in information security for more than 25 years, she established her leadership position early in the uh, discipline's development, looking at uh, security from the identity, access, and privilege management perspective. As an advocate for risk-oriented, resiliency-based approach to cybersecurity, she loves understanding why people do what they do. Elizabeth also leads efforts for gender parity, actively promoting cybersecurity and risk management as engaging careers for women. She is the executive sponsor for several family and women initiatives at EY. She received a BA in Biological Basis of Behavior in Spanish and an MA in Romance Languages and Literature from the University of Pennsylvania. Liz, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so to start at the beginning, we always ask this of all of, all of our guests, uh, how and when did you first get started in computers and security? Was tech, computers, and security always part of your interest, or did you move down that avenue later in life? Well, you just mentioned my majors in college, so <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, sort of. I've been that, pretty maybe clear. Maybe adjacent, a, yeah, <laughs> at best. <laughs> slightly non-unconventional. Sure, right? so, so how, how, yes. did you, how did you make the jump over? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a great journey. First of all, I'll tell <laughs> you that I... Um, I'm a strong believer in a diverse education as an undergraduate, and that's yes. really what I went after. So I started off college thinking I was going to be a doctor mm-hmm. and went after a pre-med program, fell in love with foreign languages, studied some of that, got mm-hmm. a chance to edit journals, deliver speeches around the world, do all kinds of really exciting things. And at one point, when I was nearing the conclusion of a PhD in romance languages and literatures, which I loved and continue to love, yeah. I thought, well, I wonder what the rest of the world uh, um, is doing and, and what I might do out in the business world. So I went out looking for an opportunity to engage in the business world, understanding that my degrees were not specific to any kind of real business opportunity, but that my brain was well-trained and that I was someone right. who could contribute. So I found an opportunity at a financial services organization that was having some trouble and they were navigating the rehabilitation of their organization. And so I found a way in um, as kind of a special projects person. I like to think of myself as that kid on the bench who was just there to uh, have a a brain deployed at a a difficult problem. Right, Right. And when we looked at the list of problems that were on the table, one of them was technology. And being the kid that I was, I picked the thing I knew the least about rather than the thing I knew the most about. And I dug in and it was, you know, in my mind, just another language and another thing to study. So that's really how the journey began. Um, We were looking back in those days at how to navigate a distributed environment where data was in a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. So that very neatly led me to the world of identity and access management, trying to understand how to grant people who were sitting in different offices in different locations across a landscape access to the same data without corrupting that data or compromising that data in any way. So it was kind of a, an unusual journey, but one that benefited, I think, from my communication skills and from yep. my uh, willingness to go solve problems. Uh, so tell us about your work at EY Advisory now. What do you do as the leader of life sciences and health sectors in America's cybersecurity? 
And so it's kind of a big, a, a big set of words, right? What it really yeah, I had means. Yeah, kind of, I had 20 minutes to parse that. I was, I was sort of I looking know. at multiple websites, but yeah, okay, tell me about no, it. No doubt. Well, basically, when we look at uh, our cybersecurity business at EY, we focus very strongly on the different business sectors into which our clients belong. So okay. what it really means to be a sector leader in cybersecurity is that I think about what does cybersecurity mean to clients or organizations who are part of that broader health ecosystem? What are they most worried about? What are the things that they're most concerned about? Um, we're going to talk during the course of today's chat about risk and about prioritization of the things that you address. And one of the ways that we do that is by looking at you know, what matters most? What are the things that really can't go wrong? How do we figure out how to make sure that we're optimizing our resources and our approaches? So in being a sector leader, what I'm really doing is focusing on understanding what is happening in that sector. What are people strategically worrying about? And then it would be my job to derive from those um, kind of transformative forces in the industry derive the risks that really would be significant and where cybersecurity could become an enabler of managing those issues. Okay. Does that make uh, sense? Yeah, yeah, it definitely yeah. does. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess to go one step down from there, mm -hmm. you know, for someone who's uh, considering this type of work, like uh, yep. walk, walk me through your, your day to day, like what kind of things do you work on on a, I, obviously every day is different, but like what, what kind of things yeah. do you work on on a daily basis? What are, where, you know, where, where does your time go in, in an average weekday? Well, I think that the, the fun part about being in an advisory business is it does change a lot, right? Okay. So some of my days are spent on site with my clients mm -hmm. and those are really fun days, right? Those are days where I'm on site with people that I'm there to support yep. um, with a team of EY professionals where we're talking about how do we make the most of um, the time spent with the client to make sure that we're doing the best that we can, that we're delivering yep. quality, but that we're thinking, right? So uh, since we're a part of an advisory business, while my business is cybersecurity, my colleagues around that client environment and around my firm are doing all kinds of things, finance, um, accounting kind of work, uh, people advisory, transaction okay. advisory, all kinds of things. Got so it. we get to sort of look at the, the broader landscape of things. But if I can go back to what happens in a day, some days I'm on site with clients. Some days I'm working with my team, trying to make sure that we understand that industry and we understand the commonalities that we see between clients so that we're bringing the best of the sector to our client experiences. And other times I'm looking at our cybersecurity business and making sure that we're listening to the learnings from our clients and, and kind of um, shaping our business going forward by listening to what seems to really be needed. So it seems like you're customizing sort of the, you know, the solution to each, you know, individual, you know, group that you work with and, and each one has sort of a different set of challenges and so forth. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of challenges that are common, right? When we look yeah. at pharmaceuticals, for example, you know, pharmaceutical companies going to be concerned with product safety, patient safety, um, safe distribution of their products, safety of their inventions, their clinical trials, those kinds of things are going to be right. common from people who are trying to address disease in a safe and secure way. Yes. And you go to perhaps a, um, a health insurer who would be part of that same health ecosystem, but is less worried about um, IP around medicine and perhaps more worried about um, personal health information that they carry for their constituents. So, you know, it's trying to understand the business of, of this ecosystem and, and aligning accordingly. 
Okay. Um, you describe yourself as an advocate for risk-oriented, resiliency-based approach to cybersecurity. Uh, what does this mean, and how does this approach to cybersecurity different from differ from the strategies most often utilized by organizations or security professionals? We use a lot of big, long words, so <laughs> yeah, describe yeah, what yeah. we do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so so let's. You know, I think that one of the things I like to talk about in this topic is that cybersecurity started off as something that was like this weird, scary thing in the back office in a in a data center someplace. Okay, and then it became the fear factor. It became the thing that everyone was using to scare people out of touching anything, right? (laughs) I'm on my computer. I can't click here. I can't open this. Oh my God, do I have a virus, et cetera, right? So there was a lot of fear involved. Then we got to a point where the, the pervasiveness of cyber threat and the actual understanding that cyber threat is a weapon that is used routinely today across the globe you like it, you don't like it, you're afraid of it, you're not afraid of it. But the reality is that it's a part of our our business world today. So the question became, can we turn that fear-based tactic into something more positive? Okay. So um, when we talk about resiliency and a risk-based approach, we're trying to convert from don't touch that computer system to, you know, what are the things that we're really banking on and can we make risk an exciting thing, a thing that enables transformation and at the same time embed the types of controls into that process from the very beginning. Here at EY, we we reference a a term called trust by design. Mm -hmm. So we think about the idea of resiliency and cybersecurity as an enabler of trust because we want our users to trust our systems. We want our customers to trust our product. We want our distributors to trust our formulas, et cetera, et cetera, right? So trust by design, cybersecurity at the early stage of an evolution of something and turning a negative into a positive, making security an enabler of transformation. Okay. Can you give me sort of a, for example, um, you know, uh, like what an example of, you know, a a process that was, you know, one way and then you came in and, and, you know, with this uh, in in mind, you, you changed the company's sort of methods to, to a different way. so one example might be a, a company that's considering a particular geography for a new okay. location. Uh-huh. So the question would be, should the company go to that geography, set up shop, start doing business with that company, and then explore the cyber threat that that region of the world um, uh, imposes? Mm-hmm. Or could we look at the question of cyber threat from a geographic perspective and say, let's get you a briefing before you go there uh, on how to okay. do business safely in that geography? Yes. So that would be one way to sort of change the game in a positive rather than saying you just set up this whole office and this whole feature. And by the way, you're horribly exposed and everything's been stolen already. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. So setting it. <laughs> right. So it's it's not only more dangerous, but more expensive to do it that way. It's much right. more efficient if we can if we can put that into the design of the innovation or of the move. Another kind of an example might be if you're setting up a trial for a new medicine. So in a clinical trial environment, there's a lot of controls that go into clinical trials. But sometimes we're not thinking about the periphery. What third parties are accessing data? What um, access, how is access being managed to that data? You know, we talked about me as an identity and access management professional. And those things sometimes aren't thought of when you think about research, right? Researchers might think that the IT people have it handled. And the reality is that that peripheral layer of access control could be the difference between a successful trial and, and an, an unsuccessful one. 
And that means big dollars too. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you know, always comes down to that at the end. Well, for the company doing the research, right? Sure. Imagine going all the way down that path and then finding out that something had been compromised and yep. therefore the research is unacceptable to regulate. Square one again. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you also note that at EY, we are risk professionals, and yet the pace of change today is so fast that no organization has the resources and capacity to address every risk with equal fervor. Since, yeah. the, since the pace of change isn't likely to slow down anytime soon, what are your strategies and recommendations for giving each risk the appropriate amount of energy and priority? Yeah, so a lot of it goes back to that question of of thinking about risk as a part of the journey, right? That mm-hmm. we we no longer can live by avoiding risk. And cyber risk is is no different, right? There are all kinds of risks that happen to actions in the marketplace, but cyber risk is is here to stay. So the question is, have you thought about the questions about what really has to go right, right? Um, What might surprise you down the path? Can you imagine what might surprise you? And, And what could go wrong? And just try to Rather than say, oh, my God, I hope nothing goes wrong, <laughs> try to actually imagine what could go wrong and then what controls can we build to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yep. And nothing's perfect. But, again, it connects to that notion of aligning resources to the things that really, really matter in the strategy of an organization um, so that if the organization understands its purpose and that by definition that purpose drives certain prioritization Mm-hmm. That through a, a lens of cybersecurity, we're going to see risk in a slightly different way than perhaps a finance professional would or a right. procurement professional or an operations professional, right? So we like to say that we take that cyber risk lens to the question of what has to go right yep. and then suggest what controls can we optimize to give you the best possible outcome. Understanding that nothing's perfect, nothing's forever, but that that iterative, agile approach is what we would advocate because it, it, risk is changing fast, technology changes quickly, everything keeps moving, moving, moving. So the notion of a, I think the other thing that's important to note is that it's really a change from the world of compliance-based controls okay. to a more risk orientation, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding that, yes, we certainly have obligations to comply with regulations and things right. like that. But if, but if we only do compliance, then we're likely to fail on things that are critically important to us as a business. So so that's what taking that risk lens to it means, um, and as we proceed through some of your questions today, I think we'll talk probably about the the notion of how different kinds of perspectives inform that risk. Yeah. And that's how we as cybersecurity professionals then can build the controls that seem to align most to that risk. Yeah, we hear, we hear that a lot of um, people who, you know, something goes wrong and they say, well, you know, we were in compliance, you know, and stuff. But if you're, yeah. if that's all you're thinking about, then that doesn't necessarily cover everything. That's just a baseline. It's not a suitable strategy today, no. right? It's no. it, it's not, again, it's not to say that compliance isn't important. It's certainly right. an obligation and a responsibility. But yep. at the same time, you know, looking at critical corporate risks. And I think the exciting thing about cyber today is when we do look at, when an organization is willing to look at risks with eyes wide open, yep. most of the risks are going to be tied to some new initiative that is likely to have a digital component to it. Because where does innovation happen today if it's not digital at some level, right? Everyone's looking at automation, at artificial intelligence, at cloud, at, you know, whatever, you name it, right? So somewhere, somehow, there's something digital involved in the, in the landscape. So the question is, can we early on say, 
what are the vulnerabilities? Where are the things that we should really build stronger defenses against? What are the kind of the crown jewels that, you know, if they were tangible, I would put them in a really big safe, right? And let's right. see what kind of digital protections I can build around them. Okay. Um, so uh, as I mentioned at the start of the show here, um, we uh, have been speaking for the last month or so to a number of women in the cybersecurity industry, women of color, uh, and, um, and, and getting their, you know, voices and experiences in the cybersecurity industry. So, uh, could you tell me a little bit about your experience as a woman in the cybersecurity field? Are there, have there been some specific challenges and setbacks that you've had to endure that are likely not put upon men of similar background and skill set? And how do you overcome them? You know, it, it's funny because when I, I get asked that question a lot, and I think that when I grew up in this business, there were so few females that I, you know, I don't even know how to answer it from my personal experience. I think it's probably better if I answer that question on behalf of the women that I mentor and the people who okay. experience it today, right? Yep. Um, because the world has changed since I started, and I was always the only woman at the table, and now yep. I'm one of two at the table, or you know, right, it's not right. that much better to be honest, yeah. but. Um, you know, we're trying. And, mm -hmm. and I would say that what happens with women is that we, you know, part of the problem is that there are still so many fewer women in STEM or STEAM-based um, programs in college that the um, number of women coming through with good quality um, education in this area is, is still small. So the women who come in, they come in still as a minority and they're still counting on interactions with men in the field. So one of the things I like to say is that we're doing our women a little bit of a disservice today if we tell them that they should seek out other women mentors in this field to help them through. I'd like to think that those of us who are senior women in this field are teaching some of our male colleagues to be yeah. better mentors to the young women who come in. Because if we limit women to only women, then by definition, we're going to run out and the equation yep. isn't going to get any better. Right. So, I, you know, I think in terms of, of obstacles, I often think that the very nature of the fact that women and men will, by nature, look at things a little bit differently and see challenges a little bit differently. They're, they're I hate to generalize, but, but as long as we're generalizing, um, generalize you know, on. the... <laughs> the <laughs> The reality is that women see challenges in a slightly different way than men do. And, right. and the classic example is a, a set of requirements for a new job, right? Okay. A yes. woman classically will look at a set of requirements. There are 10 on the list. She's got eight out of the 10 and she said, darn, uh, I'm not qualified. Yep. And a guy will look at the list of 10 and he'll have two out of the 10 and he'll say, oh, I got a shot. Yep. Right. It's, right. you know, it's just a slightly different bravado that comes into the, into the process. Yep. So um, I think that women sometimes put, we put ourselves at a disadvantage from the outset because we see things very um, comprehensively and, and genuinely, and we're hard on ourselves a little bit professionally, yep. um, balancing a lot of priorities. So, um, so it gets to be tricky. Um, I think as a woman in cybersecurity specifically, it's been important to get used to being in an environment where there will be a lot of men mm -hmm. and a lot of technically savvy men. And we as women in the industry have to have both the competency and the willingness to push ourselves into a slightly less comfortable space. Yes. Um, but you have to have the competency also. So you're going to be willing to be a good student of this, to build the skills, to know that you're not going to be easily snowed. Mm -hmm. um, among a sea of people who have had different kind of training. 
Yep. Yeah. We've, we've, we've heard those, those statistics before with regards to uh, yeah. you know, job postings and stuff. And, and I think another thing sort of tied to that is we keep hearing about, you know, that there's this sort of tendency in HR to, you know, create these, you know, these job descriptions that are for sort of a unicorn candidate, you know, you need yeah. five years of this and these six secure, you know, these six certifications yep. and that, that sort of further pushes things out because again, you, you know, now you really have these sort of uncrossable chasms, you yes. know, and if women are saying, well, I definitely can't do that. And, and, you know, guys are like, Oh, what the hell, you know, throw a rope across, see what happens. But, um, I just, that just, you know, every, every, you know, incremental thing like that just, uh, sort of pushes things in a, in a backwards direction. I think that's, it's, it's a great point. And the, the question of job descriptions is a great one, right? Yeah. Because when, if we think back to the earlier part of this conversation about all of the things that impact our ability to zero in on cyber risk. Yep. I will tell you that my science experience helps me with the sector that I'm in. Yep. I can sit down and talk to a researcher and feel pretty comfortable having that conversation. I can't do that work anymore, but I'm not afraid to have discussions about DNA and RNA engineering yep. and things like that. I understand what that is. So right. those skills actually help me a lot. Mm -hmm. um, political science majors, history majors, good writers, good presenters, all of those skills bring a tremendous amount of value into this field. Yep. Now you have to learn the technical skills. You have to have an aptitude. You have to, because you don't want to be in this business with no skills right. technically, because it, it starts to be like, what are you doing here? Right? Right, right. But at the same time, you know, everyone has to learn when they come into a new field. So, yes. uh, you know, the one thing I would say at a firm like EY, what's great and what's exciting is that you don't have to have all of your skills on day one. We yep. expect young people who come into the job market to need to build some skills in a practical manner. So that's kind of normal. Um, so I would say challenge the job descriptions that people see um, and, and really take a shot at saying, look, I bring these things to this job mm. and I'm going to need you, employer, to help me acquire these other things and, and ask for it. Because you know what? Employers are struggling to yes. find great talent today. Um, they're really struggling. There is there is no unemployment in cybersecurity today. Mm -hmm. So don't tell me that there isn't a case to be made for someone with a slightly unconventional background who yep. has an aptitude for technology and a willingness to learn couldn't make a case for a lot of these roles. Um, I totally agree. Um, so tell me about your your mentor and sponsorship roles for women in cyber and STEAM roles. How many young women do you mentor and or sponsor? Uh, so a lot, um, a lot. Uh, you know, different levels, obviously, because I can't do the same for everybody. But what I do is I, I do a lot of the work that I do in that area is through different organizations. So um, two of the ones that I help right now start at a very young age. They're working with high school students. Okay. So one is called Generation. The way mm -hmm. that her is kind of yep. highlighted in the middle. Yep, yep. And um, another one is called Girls Who Code. Okay. Um, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, yep. These are two organizations that are targeting education and exposure for young women to understand kind of what's out there. Mm -hmm. So I do some work with those organizations to help young women consider, you know, how they might explore a career in cybersecurity. And then there's, um, you know, look, I'm a, a mother of two high school daughters. So I have, I, I think, an appreciation for the way young women look at the world and, and want to explore and I have studied um, the the kind of big macroeconomic trends that go on in in the in the world today, or over history, I should say. And right now, where we are is that people are coming to into a workforce wanting responsibility, 
but also understanding that they don't have to, on day one, do what they're going to be doing on year 10, right? They're, they recognize the, the longevity that is in front of them, and they're willing to do things and explore and experiment a little bit more than, you know, maybe generations prior. So mm-hmm. I like to spend time with them um, and to, with younger people and try to make sure it's on their radar as, an, as, a, as a possibility so that they don't think a career in cyber means sitting in a basement writing code, that, you know, there's more to it than that. Yes. Um, and then inside of EY, I, I founded an organization called Women in Cybersecurity, which is simply a, a, a national organization that seeks to connect women in cyber and cyber related fields to one another within EY just for building a community. Um, We know that women benefit from knowing that there are other women who are doing similar kind of work. Absolutely. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I noticed, I noticed on the, uh, that in 2017, you joined the executive women's forums board of advisor. Uh, Uh This, this board is a network of highly influential female thought leaders from the information security, risk management and privacy industries. Are you still with this organization? I am. Um, I am. Uh, and if uh, can you uh, tell me a little bit about their work advocating for women in information security? So uh, we love this organization, and yeah. I love being a part of their leadership team. But EY has been a, a sponsor of theirs for many, many years. Um, in fact, I think one of the one of the first sponsors. I think we celebrated 15 years with them last year. Um, and this organization seeks to um, bring women in positions in the cybersecurity, cyber risk um, kind of professions together across industry. So this is, there's an annual meeting every fall where we get five, six, seven hundred women together. Um, and it's really empowering for women who are thinking about these careers to see that many of us, right? We laugh because we put a, a women's sign on the door to the men's room because there are no men. So <laughs> <laughs> we can double the capacity. And there right? you go. That's great. And, uh, and then a, a very dear friend and client of mine, a man who came and spoke to this group two years ago, he stood in front of this whole giant group of women and was talking to them and said, you know, I'm just kind of noticing that the only other men in the room are serving you all lunch. So, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's an opportunity to, to see what the other side feels yes, and to sure. build a little bit of that spirit of leaning into yeah. this field because you know that it's not anywhere near as tiny as it seems in terms right. of the network of women that are out there. So you get women from all different um, uh, industries, companies, government, um, university, et cetera. You build a great network of friends and supporters. Yeah. Um, and then the, the other thing that this organization that we've started doing is um, creating opportunities for younger women executives to kind of have a almost a millennial version of what we do at the more senior levels okay. in this um, in this group so that they're connecting with one another in a language and in a style that makes most sense to them. So it's being led by young women for yep. young women and celebrating the rising stars of the industry. So just another, it's another way to really celebrate the power of um, women in this field. Mm-hmm. And last quick comment is that an offshoot of this uh, executive women's forum has been um, an annual event on Capitol Hill okay. where women from this organization gather together and meet with senators and various government officials talking about um, opportunities for women to impact the world of cybersecurity, cyber risk management um, in the United States. So um, that's been interesting too and really exciting to get to um, interact with people um, in that capacity. 
Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in, in, in speaking with you about here is you mentioned that you have, you know, the sort of top level leadership group, and then you have like sort of the millennial version for people who are getting a little earlier in the industry and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're a strong advocate for the goal of creating gender parity in cybersecurity, including in management and leadership roles. And I feel like this is a pretty multifaceted challenge because you're not just moving a lot of women into the, you know, the, the, the entry level, although that's the case, but you're, you know, you have to have this sort of deep bench that you can sort of keep promoting them into, you know, management positions, leadership positions, CISOs, CEOs, you know, and things like that. So, uh, you know, it requires on doing decades of industry-wide short-sightedness at most charitable and outright discrimination at the worst. Uh, Mm -hmm. So what are some of the most vital strategies to bring more women and minority professionals who are in the cybersecurity position at all levels? So I, I think it's, um, well, one thing that you, that you mentioned in terms of rising people up is to really look at a strategy around retention. Yeah. Because the ability to move people up the ranks implies by design that you have some sort of strategy for them to feel like they want to stay the course in the organization. Yeah. Um, you know, as we invest in our more junior professionals, we want them to feel that they have a home in our practice. And even if they were to decide to depart for a period of time, I spoke with a young woman um, recently, who has a, been exploring um, industry-based opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think for a minute that she's exploring this because anything's wrong with what we're doing today. I think right. she's exploring it to accelerate her level of experience in the field and with an intent to be able to come back as an advisor in the future. So the combination of retaining women in our organization and retaining our network of alumni who depart and will consider coming back into the organization is strategically where I would look at how we maintain that network of connectedness um, to our women. But my, the women on my team know that there's nothing I like better than to see them rise through the ranks and work me out of jobs. I go find something else to do. (laughs) Um, It's a big firm, lots of things to do, lots of places to to make an impact. So um, I love to see that, but I I do want to say that I love to see it with the men that work in my team as well. And what I don't like and what I worry about sometimes is our efforts around gender parity and our efforts around supporting our women I don't want it to make our high-performing men think that they're not going to get the opportunities for advancement that they've also earned. So I like to try to remember that we earn advancement. And what we're trying to do with gender parity is make sure that women get their fair share of opportunities. But we're not saying that we should promote women who are not likely to be successful in a given, you know, I think some, some organizations are, are, are failing by, pushing women into roles that they're not well suited for or not prepared for because they're trying to balance the numbers. Okay. And I think that that's a risk, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the last thing we want is to push women into a field and then have them feel like they're, they're not prepared or can't be successful. Right. It's, I tell it to my kids all the time. It's, there's no problem with someone opening a door for you, but remember that once that door has been open and you walk inside, it's all on you. So don't walk through a door where you're not prepared to tackle the challenges that are going to be on the other side. Um, So I think a lot of it for me is making sure that our women who are coming through the ranks are prepared, um, that we have programs to help them, that we have support there for them and that they see that we're investing in them so that they are the best choice. And then we can achieve gender parity and gender balance because it's good. And because everybody who's advancing is earning it. Right. Uh, I mean, the obverse of that, of course, is that, 
you know, uh, women candidates might be the most qualified and then go through the ranks. And then there's still that sort of feeling of, oh, she just got it because she's a woman or whatever. But that's well, that's it's part yeah. of what we what we fight. Right. We have to that's, fight against. It's, yeah, it's, right. it's part of the problem. And it, it's right. it's unfortunate. Right. You know, yeah. to look at someone and say, well, she only got that because of X, Y, Z. And and I, my guidance around that is is that if someone thinks you only got there because you're a woman, yeah. then prove them wrong, not by arguing with them, but by doing a great right. job. Right. Because, you know, it may require a little bit of patience, but excellence at what you do is what unwinds yeah. those assumptions. Yep. Um, the Just defending your position generally will not solve that problem. Uh, so how can we make the tech industry understand that more women in tech ultimately makes the entire industry stronger and more capable of solving problems in new and innovative ways? You mentioned that before a little bit, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's such a great topic. And I do think that the tech industry is starting to, to, to recognize it more. I think that there's the recognition is there. The candidates aren't there. So I think that if we could fill the funnel more successfully, that we might actually see some more impact. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I think that what I would say is that diversity of thought is really what solves hard problems. Yes. And whenever you are sitting at a table and everyone thinks the same way and everyone's nodding to kind of passively agree with everybody around the table, you're probably not bringing the best and most creative solutions to a given problem. Right. When I think about how complex cybersecurity is and how complex it is to make decisions about how to prioritize what you're doing, understanding that you're leaving yourself vulnerable in certain areas, right? Understanding that you're going to walk into a board of directors and say, look, these are your top 10 risks. I've got funding and capacity to address the top four. I'm going to apply kind of basic hygiene to the ones at the bottom of the list. And I'm going to hope for the best, but you need to understand that we have some exposure here. And, and I, you know, everyone has to make some very difficult choices. So we can't get to those choices without some really good thinking. And the good thinking comes from that diversity, whether it's gender diversity or educational diversity or geographic, religious, ethnic. I mean, all people come to these things. At the end of the day, advisory is a people-oriented business, right? Right. And we rely upon all that different thinking to come to better conclusions and even to ask better questions. And there also has to be sort of an understanding at the management level or the sort of leadership level that getting a bunch of different opinions when you think you have the answer already, hearing other things is not the enemy, you know, like that's right. uh, there's definitely a lot of, you know, organizations where it's like, well, we heard 12 different opinions, but I still like the one I had first, you know, it's like, you got to listen, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it seems so obvious until you're in it, right. You know, and then you're in it and it's, it's not so easy always to be the dissenting opinion and then, you know, in a sea of people who are all head nodding, Nodding. you know, it's, it's not so easy, but I will say that, you know, cybersecurity at the heart of it is a problem solving challenge. And it's an industry that is seeking to do good things, not to be the no police, but to be the people who are helping to um, secure the business operations that you're um, that you're operating in and to give you greater sense of confidence that your product services people whatever it happens to be will be more secure as a result of having done these things um, but it's tricky right because it's not an all or nothing it's right. not an exact science I don't yep. know how many 
senior executives have come over to me and said, so just tell me the things I have to do and I'll go do them. Well, <laughs> you know, I wish I could give you a checklist. Yeah. So just yeah, do yeah. these things, right? right? You know, people love to fall on, you know, I'm following the NIST framework and everything's going to be fine, right? And yes. well, no, it's not as simple as that. And yes, all of those things are, are building blocks to good solutions. Yep. But in my mind, again, having the ability to change the game from no, 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 you can't do that to what can I as a cybersecurity professional do so that the executives in the companies that I serve say no less frequently because they have trust in the systems that they've built because the security was built in from the beginning and they're not so worried about people misusing or or damaging the data or the systems themselves, then all of a sudden you build a, a culture of greater trust, greater excitement, greater enthusiasm, and then greater innovation comes forward. So having worked in information security for more than 25 years, what tips would you give to women entering the world of security? What are some of the pernicious pitfalls that you've learned to sidestep over the years? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great topic. There are, there are many, <laughs> okay. but I would say, uh, you know, not that many that necessarily are about being female. I would say that for me, um, one of the things is that if you come, what I've learned is that if you come into this business with an unconventional background, which many will, um, mm -hmm. and which I did certainly that don't be accepting of not having the competency you must learn what it is that you're representing. So if I'm an IAM professional, an identity and access management professional, I don't want to be snowed by someone who knows so much more than I do because I know nothing, right? I might not be the senior most architect in our practice, but I'm pretty good at this stuff. I've got a lot of experience doing this. And so I think that we have to not accept that we don't need to be technical enough to, to be a little dangerous in the discussion, right? We have sure. to be able to be competent. So, and I think that it's a, it's a classic failing. A woman will become a project manager and doesn't need the technical depth right. to understand how the code is being written or how the integration is being um, envisioned. She does need to lean in and say, show me, let me see the code. Code today is not a bunch of ones and zeros. Code can be read. Yep. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's, it's different. So that would be one. And the other lesson that I've shared before, but that I really think is so important is that when you are in a difficult situation, check yourself and see if you're alone in that situation, because women tend to be very strong problem solvers and try to work hard to get them, get something resolved. And a mentor of mine, a man by, as an example, mm -hmm. um, Chris said to me one day, well, you know what the problem is? You're all alone in the boat. Yeah. And when you're alone in the boat, right, and the boat starts to sink, yep. guess what? Your outcome is not likely to be very good. But if you have other people in the boat with you, you can put together a strategy where someone's going to patch and someone's going to row and someone's going to blow up a lifeboat. And you, you've got a much better chance at getting through. And I think that women, by, their, by our nature, have a tendency not to bring people into the boat when there's a problem. And they see they seek to solve the problem. And I have learned in my experience that being alone in the boat does not get you the best outcome. So um, that collaboration is critical. Uh, so as we wrap up today, if uh, we want to hear mm. more from uh, if people want to know more about Liz Mann or EY Advisory, <laughs> uh, where, yes. where can they find you? 
So they can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on all the usual places. And certainly okay. they can connect with me um, at EY. At, you know, I'm easily found on the ey.com public um, website. So you okay. can find me. But LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. If someone mm-hmm. wants to send me a message, I'm, I'm out there and happy to hear from people. Um, we are certainly actively looking for great talent all the time. We all are. Um, I personally think that our environment is one that welcomes people of all types with all different kinds of skills and and even different kinds of challenges. You know, people who are exceptionally great data scientists but don't want to be client-facing, people who love to be client-facing and strategic but are getting rusty on code. You know, right. there's there's all kinds of ways to engage in this really exciting field that, you know, unfortunately or fortunately seems to be on the front page every day. Yeah. Uh, Liz Mann, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Me too. And uh, thank you all for listening and watching. If you enjoyed today's video, you can find many more on our YouTube page. Just go to YouTube and type in Cyberspeak with InfoSec to check out our collection of tutorials, interviews, and past webinars. If you'd rather have us in your ears during your workday, all of our videos are also available as audio podcasts. Just search Cyberspeak with InfoSec in your favorite podcast app. To see the current promotional offers available for podcast listeners and to learn more about our InfoSec Pro Live Boot Camps, InfoSec Skills on Demand Training Library, and InfoSec IQ Security Awareness and Training Platform, go to InfoSecInstitute.com slash podcast or click the link in the description. Thanks once again to Liz Mann at EY Advisory, and thank you all for watching and listening. We'll speak to you next week. <laughs>